Hello and welcome to Tuesdays at APA Chicago, our monthly after-hours lecture series held at APA's Burnham Conference Center. My name is David Morley. I'm a senior research associate at APA and host of Tuesdays at APA Chicago. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. Selected past programs are also available as podcasts, and you can see the APA website for additional details. Tonight, we have with us Brad Hunt and John DeVries from Roosevelt University in Chicago. Brad is Dean of Roosevelt University's Evelyn T. Stone College of Professional Studies. He received his Ph.D. in History from the University of California, Berkeley, in 2000. Brad's History of the Chicago Housing Authority, entitled Blueprint for Disaster, won the 2009 Lewis Mumford Prize from the Society of American City and Regional Planning History for the Best Book in North American Planning History in 2008-2009. John is director of the Marshall Bennett Institute of of Real Estate at Roosevelt. He has over 35 years of experience in real estate and economic consulting with URS, Arthur Anderson, and Goodkin Research. John has worked with the City of Chicago on numerous plans, including the Central Area Plan and the Central Area Action Plan. While the city of Chicago had great success in the 1950s and 60s in crafting strong central area plans and path-breaking comprehensive plans, more recently, major planning initiatives have been largely unimplemented and replaced by deal-making and one-off projects. Drawing on their new APA Planners Press book, Planning Chicago, Brad and John are here tonight to explain the rise and retreat of planning in Chicago over the past half-century and the need for a planning renaissance. Thank you, David. John and I are going to be tag-teaming the presentation today. I'd like to thank David for inviting us. I'd like to thank the APA for sponsoring and publishing this book. This is part of the APA's Planners Press series of books on uh, various cities on the state of planning uh, in cities across the country. The first book was on Los Angeles. This one's Chicago. The next one's coming out next year uh, on Atlanta. And we want to describe some of the highlights of the book and some of the major themes today for you. before I do that, I want to I, I thank Helene Berlin, who's here in the audience. She was a research assistant uh, for us, and a terrific researcher who did a, a great job in helping us with everything from uh, employment data uh, to digging up old plans, and uh, thank you, Helene. So let me tell you about some of the themes uh, of planning Chicago. Chicago once planned confidently in a period we're going to describe from 1958 to 1974, and uh, has been innovative in industrial policy for a good chunk of its history, recent history. Neighborhood planning, however, has been more of a struggle. Uh, And we need to do better at implementing the plans that we currently have on the books, and John will describe some of those. Uh, And we face serious challenges uh, today and in the future. There's a, a kind of an idea that Chicago's made it. We've arrived. We've got Millennium Park. We've got the all, you know, we're a global city. And yet, uh, as a global city, we're not planning for the next 30 years the way we plan for the 30 years after, say, 1958. Uh, And what this all leads us to the conclusion that we really need to reinvigorate uh, planning in this city, that the planning function of the department uh, it needs to, to new energy, new resources, and in fact, they're going in uh, the opposite direction on that. The city's been going in the opposite direction on that. And John will describe some of that as well. Let me first describe this early period when Chicago planned confidently. 
And we go back here to 1958 to uh, a series of plans, this development plan for the central area of Chicago. I'm going to walk through each of these plans and highlights uh, from the past uh, in, in order. And it, we, together they kind of create a, a, a heyday of modern planning as we describe it. What does that heyday look like? Well, it starts in 1956-57 after Mayor Richard J. Daley takes office. Um, I'm not here to apologize for Richard J. Daley, but he did have a strong sense that planning was central to uh, the functions of the city. He immediately comes in and starts to reorganize the planning functions, creating a building commission, enacting zoning reform that had been languishing, and most importantly, creating a city department of planning. Before Richard J. Daley, planning had been ensconced in the Chicago Plan Commission, which had been an outgrowth of the 1909 Burnham Plan, uh, and there wasn't a strong connection to the rest of the city. The, the, the Plan Commission had its independence, but lacked some of the power that we might want if you wanted to have planning go uh, in strong directions. This was really something, there is something of a power grab here, but we argue that, uh, um, that this put planning more in the forefront of of the way the city uh, thought about its future. The first thing the, 19, uh, the, first thing the new planning department produced is a new a development plan for the central area. This is not a plan you may have heard about. This one is more obscure than the other two, the, uh, the, particularly than, say, the Chicago 21, the 1973 plan. This one lacked the glossy publication that uh, the Burnham plan had, uh, some of the glossier publications of later plans. But we argue that it's pivotal. Uh, it had major goals, including a compact, accessible loop, really defining the central area to keep it compact and therefore for protected. And it also said we need to bring a whole lot of new residents to the downtown, really to create the start of this 24-7 downtown that we see today. 50,000 new residents at the time was a pretty radical idea. Remember, this is the point when people are fleeing to the suburbs, highways are being built. Uh, to say we want to bring people downtown was a, a new idea. Uh, a new University of Illinois campus was going to be an institutional anchor, preferably in the South Loop. And the plan involved limited clearance and displacement as it was conceived. This was not an urban renewal plan. This is not, you know, many cities, New York at this time is thinking about plowing a highway through Greenwich Village uh, and, and things like that. This is not going to involve a lot of clearance and displacement. And it's also going to endorse transit at a time when the rest of the country is not moving in that direction. Uh, it's a plan that had the endorsement of the Growth Coalition. And here's a great image of Richard J. Daley. Uh, presiding over a model of the 1958 plan. And he really loved this model. He had it in his office. Uh, the Growth Coalition, the business leaders, the corporate interests, wanted to protect downtown, uh, a vital interest for them. Uh, and we can look at this and think, well, this is downtown. What about the neighborhoods? But without a vital downtown, we argue, you're not going to have the resources to address neighborhood issues. Uh, the key to the plan, we argue, was the reclamation of railroad land. And if you really want to understand the problems, and this goes all the way back to Burnham, but we really focus on the post-war period. If you want to understand the planning problem in Chicago's downtown area in the post-war period, you've got to understand that there's this massive amount of railroad land that circles the entire loop uh, and really uh, constricts it in ways but also creates a lot of opportunities. This is, you know, these spaces are enormous. Uh, they, uh, this orange, I mean the purple, excuse me, the purple areas are all railroad support kind of uh, buildings, warehouses, et cetera. 
And the railroads really dominated the city. This is the 19th century railroad city lingering through the mid-20th century uh, and creating uh, all sorts of uh, uh, planning problems that need to be overcome. The 1958 plan had some pretty pictures. It did envision a middle-class return to the city at a time when no one else was really thinking about this. Um, this is kind of an image, one of the few decent images in the whole plan. It's not a great presentation uh, and it shows downtown living. This is going to end up being uh, envisioned by Bertrand Goldberg as Marina City, these towers. Now you, Marina City is a part of this 1958 plan in essence. It's a, the first of the downtown living. Downtown living is going to take a while, but eventually it, and it's going to have to take another plan in 1973 to really boost it, but it's going to make it. Uh, the University of Illinois campus was supposed to be in the South Loop on some of that railroad land I pointed out earlier. Uh, instead, they could, it was very difficult to acquire that land. Uh, and so in a fateful decision, Richard J. Daly said, we're going to clear uh, uh, the Harrison-Halstead neighborhood, which was really a viable community, uh, and put the university there. Uh, that was a big mistake in many ways. It, it, it crushed that neighborhood uh, when the university could easily have gone in the South Loop and been even more attached to that what is now a strong educational uh, community there. Um, but the plan, the 58 plan did endorse transit. We're one of the few cities to have major transit lines down our highways. Uh, and that was an expansion of capacity, again, at a time when few others were doing that. We're, that these are vital lines today. If we didn't have those today, we'd be a much, uh, much less transit-rich city. I'm going to move on to the 66 plan. This wave of 58 planning then gives way to a, a really a bold burst of comprehensive planning in 1966 that went into all the neighborhoods and tried to plan those, envisioned a whole lot of capital spending, $500 million a year, much of it hopefully from the federal government. That's not going to materialize. More importantly, it included these regulatory follow-on plans. It envisioned these other uh, structural regulatory plans that are going to really help push some of the goals of the 58 plan and, and in other communities as well. Uh, and the capstone of this is this Chicago 21 plan in 1973 that I'll describe in a minute. So let's go describe what is a comprehensive plan, what made this different, uh, and it, we argue that it's pathbreaking, it's going to become a model for San Francisco and others, is that it included things like health care, um, education. It's not just a land use plan, it's beyond that. Uh, and it did divide the city into 16 sub-areas and really drilled down into it, hoping that uh, this would, would be a model for how to... Uh, allocate capital, how to allocate park space, how to really think about the city as a whole. Uh, the 66 plan had these follow-on regulatory plans, meaning uh, how do you do development like air rights? And it, the, the 58 plan's weakness was that it didn't have a great system for redeveloping the railroads. That's why UIC couldn't get built. Uh, Illinois Center becomes the test case for this. How do you build on top of these old rail yards? There's a whole thick plan on how do you do it and it's going to result eventually in what we see today in the building that we're standing in uh, as, as a part of this air right structure, building on top of the railroads uh, in a way to get it done. And this is a major accomplishment. It's also replicated down in the South Loop uh, in other developments as well, all on the west side and the north side of the loop. All these are air rights developments built on top of railroad land, a very complicated development. The 66 plan gets it done. Other follow-on regulatory plans included the very important uh, lakefront plan that really protected that, which it, it, development had started to encroach on some of those public uses, uh, like Lake Point Tower. This follows with a, a healthy plan that envisioned a whole lot of islands that are not going to get built, but 
it's still um, uh, created a, a strong regulatory framework for the lakefront, and ditto for the riverfront. We're finally starting to uh, build some of this. So these are all legacies of this planning period in the heyday. Um, Chicago 21 is the start of kind of, a, of an edging downwards. Uh, Chicago 21 is really going to expand on the bold downtown living, but it, the planning department becomes less involved. This is a Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill plan. The city's starting to farm out and uh, hire consultants to do their planning, but it did include Dearborn Park. It did have some interesting transit ideas. It did also, unfortunately, uh, in a, set, a series of bad timing as much as anything, the State Street Mall that's going to turn out to be less than successful. Here's Dearborn Park. Again, um, reclaiming lots of railroad land here. Eventually, Museum Campus is going to reclaim this and building residential community. It's not as dense as it should be, but when this was conceived, it was, again, thought to be a crazy idea to uh, have people living in the South Loop. This sparks a revival, not just on the South Loop, but also in the West Loop and North Loop, and really finally implements that idea from the 58 plan of bringing 50,000 residents downtown. Now we have 150,000 residents downtown, a true 24-7 uh, city, something that other cities are desperate for and are now trying to plan for. Uh, the State Street Mall, though, here was uh, less successful. A lot of it has to do with the uh, implementation of the actual design work here. Uh, and also there was a timing issue. Downtown malls were, downtown uh, shopping was struggling. This is the height of uh, the exodus to the suburbs. Uh, and it just didn't work, and ripping it out seemed to be the best solution. I'm going to end this section and hand over to John, um, but we're going to, this is the, the last of the central area plans until the recent period was 1983 which was really about an Olymp I'm, I'm sorry, a, a um, World's Fair along Northern Island. Uh, again, this had been now entirely privatized plan, done entirely by the Central Area Committee. The, the Department of Planning was uh, consulted on it, but was really not the driving force. Planning had gone from its heyday of being a very strong, public-spirited, city-run uh, idea, now into kind of a, a very much a business community downtown-centered planning model, uh, and we argue that that's a loss of that important public function. I'm gonna, we're going to come back to the central area, but first we're going to go to uh, the industrial areas. Thank you, Brad. Uh, we're going to pivot now. While all this was going on in the central area, uh, we had a massive structural change going on in the economy in the rest of the city, namely uh, the virtual shutdown of the steel sector on the south side. We lost tens of thousands of jobs uh, during the 70s and 80s. So we're going to talk a little bit today about Chicago's response to it, which was really kind of unprecedented in its scale, at least, uh, compared to other uh, U.S. cities. Uh, maybe because our problems were deeper, but uh, we'll talk about some of the reasons. So we're going to talk a little bit about the emergence of plant manufacturing districts here, a uh, comprehensive series of up to 20, uh, 20, ended up being 24 industrial corridors, uh, some future planning and some successes, and, uh, and we're going to end up talking a little bit about uh, regional freight planning as well. So uh, this is a, a picture of the last of the steel plants that were still functioning. Uh, this is LTV and shuttered in 2001. Um, and it was the 81-82 recession was, was really the final blow uh, to something that had been going on for quite a while. And we, we lost 30 or 40,000 jobs in addition to the general slide that was going on. And the city's response at that point was a shared one with the business community, and it resulted in a series of 
uh, industry or what we call sector uh, strategies. There was a steel industry task force. There was a task force for the printing industry. The printing industry was, was still large here. There was a textile industry, which actually ended up uh, creating an apparel board here. Uh, all of these were attempts to inject uh, the main elements of the more job training and um, uh, setting up uh, centers of, of excellence in these various industries uh, to, to pretty much no avail. Um, but coinciding with that, on the north side, a completely different style of strategy came into place, which we call a district strategy, which was came out of, out of more of a community organizing kind of tradition instead of an industry tradition, which was the uh, protests and the organizing that uh, formed around LISC and the uh, New City YMCA, resulting in uh, a series of decisions that led uh, to the creation of uh, an industrial corridor zoning policy. This was fundamentally a defensive zoning policy to stop residential incursion into uh, link into uh, Goose Island and so on. Uh, but then when the new Richard M. Daly came into the office, it, this, this strategy became accompanied by a pretty significant level of infrastructure spending and bonding. I think um, much to the surprise, when he, when he ran for office, he was noncommittal on this. When he came in, he actually ended up making a pretty significant financial commitment. Probably the, the showcase of this early effort was uh, the emergence of the Goose, Goose Island, uh, which had been former railroad land, um, and resulting, I think, in some pretty substantial redevelopment on the top. I suppose the crown jewel could be considered the Wrigley World Innovation Center. It's really R&D. Uh, so one of the things you see is where we have been successful in this, we've had to uh, pivot into some other kinds of employment, types of employment as well. Uh, and Goose Island has also served now as a, as a major center for service industry, serving a revitalized central area of the loop. On the bottom, one of the flagstones of, of, the, of, the, uh, of the strategy was the, the repositioning of the Finkel Steel uh, on Southport. And uh, that's now kind of come full cycle with Finkel uh, just recently occupying through, I think, eight years of effort uh, by different people in, our, in, our, in the planning department here in negotiations that kept them from moving to Quebec and have now moved into a, a fabulous large new facility in Burnside, the formal, former Verson Stamping Works. And uh, we've got some city staff here who may have possibly have worked on this. Uh, but one of the mobile workshops at the APA conference was we... We took a busload of people down there and watched a pour, pour steel. And uh, this new plant will have five times the capacity of the Southport plant. The punchline here is that both plants have continued in full operation because we've got an energy boom in North Dakota and Pennsylvania, and that's taking all of the fracking pipe that they can they can produce. So, um, uh, but a but a great employment success story for Chicago. Uh, eventually, uh, there was a series of corridor reports done. Uh, former Commissioner Berg is here. Some of these were done under uh, Valerie Jarrett. There was a series of things leading eventually to 24. And there's a current process going on to even designate a couple more. But as you can see, these follow heavily follow the historic railroad and waterway uh, backbone of a 19th century industrial structure. Uh, and one of the one of our contentions of the book is we we're going to have to move beyond that. Uh, one of the last areas to be brought into the industrial policy was the Calumet area. In '98, uh, uh, the city uh, 
undertook an opportunity study looking at the potential for developing down here, which led to uh, designation of a TIF, which led to a land use plan. And then uh, within months of the land use plan and the TIF being put in place, uh, Ford Motors announced a competition between Chicago and Atlanta to see uh, where they would build their first auto supplier park in North America. And uh, in 90 days, uh, we put this package together. I would argue that unless we had done the land use plan, unless we had done the TIF, uh, unless we'd put a lot of tools in place, we would have been standing dead in the water. As a result, we actually beat out a greenfield site in a, uh, in a state that had much lower labor costs and a lot of other, on the face of it, competitive advantages. That plant now uh, has had a third shift dedicated. President Obama came here a year ago fall. I was lucky enough to go and, and be part of that dedication. All the Ford Explorers in the world are now produced at this plant and exported to Europe and Asia and the rest of North of America. Uh, it has a flexible production line that could produce Lincolns, Fords, and Explorers, depending on what the demand is. And it has next door to us 1.6 million square feet of auto suppliers, which are, which are now growing enough so that they're actually supplying some of the other plants in the Midwest. Another element of uh, the Chicago planning picture, which you might not find in a typical uh, planning school book on planning is the create, and, and we argue that this is, again, another unique success of Chicago in that uh, the six major trunk railroads and the short lines and the American Association of Railroads and uh, CATS put together an intermodal task force and came up with a regional freight plan using a federal ICT legislation. It's about a $6 billion program. We're about halfway through. On the lower right-hand side uh, is the um, is the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Corwith Yard with the city skyline in the background. Um, anyway, one of, the, uh, one of the hopes of the book is that um, there will be some combination of city, state, and federal actions while we have this current administration in power to finish funding this. It's about a $6 billion program about halfway through. We need another injection of, of federal and, uh, money to help pull this across the finish line. So those are some success stories. Uh, in summary, we created a very comprehensive industrial policy here. Uh, the, the strategy that seemed to work was the district strategy, but I would argue the Ford strategy ended up being a combination of the two. It was a strategy that was oriented to serving some particular needs of that industry. It did include workforce training, one of the historic things of the sector strategy. It did include uh, energy efficiency improvements specific to that manufacturing operation, but it also included significant upgrading of the surrounding infrastructure. If, if any of you have been down on 130th and Torrance, there's about $150 million worth of grade separation and roadway projects just being finished up down there. Three railroads crossing and two, two roadways to, to uh, allow truck access into these, these plants. Um, unfortunately, and I think one of the things we argue is, uh, despite the successes, uh, we are still faced with a very challenging employment picture. Um, the industrial quarters, uh, and uh, the, this was the last uh, time frame we could run and get full year data when we had to go to press with the book. But we lost close to 20,000 jobs yet uh, in this most recent period. Uh, the city of Chicago gained 15,000 jobs, fairly modest increase, mostly in ads and meds and tourism. Um, 
Uh, Cook County, I think, is, is uh, I don't think it's yet understood uh, the extent of the job loss in Cook County, and, and a lot of this was, as you can see down at the bottom, that despite the successes in attracting suppliers, new kinds of employment to a goose island, and so on and so forth, uh, the manufacturing part of the decline has, has stayed largely unabated. In this latest period, we lost another 37,000 jobs in the city, 53,000 more jobs in Cook County in manufacturing, and 187,000 jobs statewide. These are kind of sobering numbers. And I think that uh, one of the things we're seeing in the book is, uh, and the city's efforts now with the Chicago Sustainable Industries is, we may need to start turning our attentions to other employment categories, broaden our definitions, focus on the corridors we think we can uh, really uh, put resources in and achieve some, some positive results. So Brad's going to talk, take us back to the neighborhoods. Thank you, John. So uh, Chicago's lost a lot of jobs, and that directly affects, of course, neighborhoods, because these are working-class jobs, middle-class jobs, and what is this doing uh, for the neighborhoods? We're, the book uh, profiles three Chicago communities, Englewood, Little Village, and Uptown, uh, and describes the efforts to uh, engage planning in those communities. Uh, for this talk, I want to keep us in broad strokes and talk about the pendulum shifts in the way we've thought about planning Chicago neighborhoods. Chicago's been an innovative city in some respects, uh, and, I, and I'm going to end this uh, pendulum swing on, on a, something of a positive note, I hope. Um, we've gone through a whole phrase, uh, phases of how to approach neighborhood revival, urban renewal in the 1950s, Community conservation, which is a variation of urban renewal. We did that in the 50s and 60s. That, uh, both of these sparked something of a backlash against planning. These were kind of top-down models. Community conservation less so, but certainly urban renewal was uh, a heavy-handed model that uh, sparked a lot of resentment in, in neighborhoods and led to uh, kind of the, the, uh, the thought that planning was no longer legitimate unless it was truly bottom-up. Uh, that was a 70s and 80s argument. We're going to argue for a return of planning in the recent decade, particularly with a program uh, as an example of this out of LISC, the, low, uh, the Local Initiatives Support Corporation. Uh, and they have generated a, a really interesting model for how to do community planning that brings the pendulum kind of back from this top down to only the community to, to bringing uh, the expert planners and the community together in, in, in interesting ways. We've kind of had to go through this painful learning curve here to figure out how to blend those ideas. Um, here's urban renewal. We may know this story. Uh, it's a pretty brutal one where we wiped away entire communities to build uh, often kind of modernist uh, enclaves. Uh, it, it was devastating to many uh, neighborhoods, um, produced interesting but not, uh, all that, not, not all that interesting neighborhoods like uh, Lake Meadows. Uh, this then gave way at the same time to an idea called community conservation. You may or may not have heard of this planning idea. It's actually pioneered in Chicago in Woodlawn in the 40s. It's going to get implemented far more in that 1966 comprehensive plan in, this, uh, in some neighborhoods, particularly in Lincoln Park, where the idea was to not do wholesale clearance but to do spot clearance to stitch the neighborhood back together. In this case, Ogden Avenue, which had been plowed through uh, the Lincoln Park area as a part of the Burnham plan, gets restitched back together. Uh, and that was, uh, it ends up leading, uh, contributing quite directly to the gentrification of Lincoln Park. But these were the kind of small-scale ideas uh, that were coming from planners in the 1960s. 
Again, though, this is still kind of top-down. Uh, there's going to be a backlash against this, uh, this mode of planning and the thought that only, the only legitimate planning is going to come from neighborhood organizations, in this case, community development corporations. The idea is that they're going to uh, take control of their own communities. They do a whole lot of planning. What do they do best? It tends to be uh, things like, um, uh, well, this is an example from the, an uptown example of this. Um, how do you, you, you educate the community very much uh, about bringing parks and, and livability ideas to the community? But the one thing that they're, they have the most money for is things like housing rehabilitation. So community development corporations get tracked very narrowly into housing as the solution to community problems. There's a jobs effort in the Harold Washington years. I think that's really important. Harold Washington uh, transforms the 1983 Central Area Plan and has his own plan called Chicago Works, very much focused on employment. Uh, again, a lot of it, though, ends up being shovel-ready housing developments. Um, that's the one thing where there's a lot of federal money. Uh, so the, the idea of um, community-based develop community planning, neighborhood planning, really um, gets – uh, diluted from the, the broader planning ideas that are more comprehensive. Uh, what's exciting, I think, about the LISC program that starts uh, out of a model in Brooklyn, I mean, sorry, the Bronx in the late 1990s and gets implemented in Chicago in the last decade is that it has a very specific process to generate a quality of life plan. And this is going to marry the community groups uh, with a more professional plan, with, with some professional planners, with uh, some support from the LISC office in, uh, in building capacity, uh, with an on-the-ground community development corporation that's going to own and implement the plan. It's a, it's a very structured process. It's not just community meetings where everybody's uh, spouting their ideas. It's, it's got a, a much more um, a, a more structured process. And this is a, an image from one of their their um, their their planning documents. Here's an example of this in Englewood where it's going to combine very concrete ideas for this corner or that corner with, um, with also with park ideas uh, and in a way that the residents can understand it, that they can see measurable goals. It's comprehensive as well. It's going to deal with relations with the police. That's a big part of the Englewood plan, desire to improve relations with law enforcement, a lot to do with education, a lot to do with open space. There's a community garden. There are a whole lot of little things that are developed by the community, but also structured in a way uh, and also uh, put together in uh, with, with uh, a series of um, uh, documents that can put in concrete form uh, the goals and visions of the community. We think this is a, a positive step forward. It's not flawless. It's not perfect. You still have to have resources. You still have to coordinate with the city. You still have to have a whole lot of effort behind implementation. Um, but we finally kind of stopped this uh, swing from one swing to the other from, well, the federal government's going to knock everything down and start over to the only legitimate planning is, uh, is, is when a community does it without any help to let's work together and really uh, try to move this uh, forward by bringing the best ideas of both groups, the professional planners and the community. Um, with that, I'm going to turn it back to John, who's going to go back to the central area. Um, you'll recall the last slide we saw about the central area. We're kind of bouncing you back and forth doing some time frames here. But just to remind you, the last slide you saw about the central area was this glorious rendering of the 1983 World's Fair. Um, 
And uh, Brad, by the way, dug that out at the Chicago History Museum. They didn't even know they had it and scanned it and put it in the book. And as a footnote, we've, we actually ended up with over 100 graphics in the book with maps and illustrations from some of these older plans, uh, funded in part by uh, Lambda Alpha International, gave us a grant to help do some of that. But to bring us up to the present, now I have to be very careful. I have the commissioner who is in charge of the Central Area Plan sitting four rows from me. I have Patty Gallagher, who is sitting three rows behind her, who is the head of the Strategic Planning Division. Anyway, uh, in 2003, after uh, 20 years of delay, uh, we had a new Central Area Plan. Uh, what was happening in the interim? Well, we went through a period of uh, Harold Washington uh, came into office shortly after the uh, 83 plan was done. He reluctantly signed the plan as a draft, but then, as Brad has already mentioned, came out within 12 months with his own work jobs-oriented plan. And then in another year, uh, the World's Fair effort had collapsed. So we went through a period of uh, uh, fervent involvement by the business community, followed by disillusionment, followed by a lot of the neighborhood struggles which Brad has profiled here. The planning department tried to get back to doing a central area plan in the early 90s, wrote up an internal document, says we need one. There were some efforts, there were efforts, some successful, not. There was planning uh, in uh, revamping uh, things going on with relative to State Street. Um, there was a document called Principles of Planning produced by the planning department. These are all the reasons we need it. But it took, uh, it took a crisis, I think, uh, in the, uh, 2001, 2002. What had come to a head was a conflict in the business community about whether or not the success of some of the earlier plans was jeopardizing the future of the central areas, the best way that I can put it. And that is, uh, coming out of these earlier plans, we did get robust residential growth uh, to the point that in 2001 and 2002, uh, the Central Area Committee, and uh, starting in, in 1999, Central Area Committee became very worried, and the big issue was, are we running out of land for offices? And remember how strong this issue was? And we went through a planning debate of, should we start designating after 30 years of priming the pump, we're going to finally get residential downtown, should we start designating office-only zones? How many American cities had that issue? So anyway, it was a nice issue to have to struggle with, but uh, to put that issue to rest, um, uh, the department decided we needed an economic framework analysis, and let's, let's look at the economics of what's going on. And this plan, maybe more than anything that preceded it, really focused on what are the emerging levels of demand, opportunity, base and opportunity for office, for institutional, for office, for uh, retail, um, uh, for, for education, and, and quantified those things and turned them into calculations of what land demand would be. Concurrently with that, the department and Skidmore worked on a land supply analysis, which looked at not just vacant, as I recall it, but uh, land that was probably being underutilized and could at some point in the near future enter the supply. The upshot of that was two things. The first was we're not going to run out of land if we upgrade our densities. Um, and subsequently coming out of this plan was a recommendation for significantly upgrading densities in proximity to where we had our major train stations. So the West Loop the re coming out of this plan directly into the 04 zoning reform 
was a significant upgrading of densities. Instead of going to a one-use-only zone, we said, let's upgrade the densities and let the market decide. Uh, what, can the, what, what, what can the market afford to build at 30, 40, and 50 stories? And subsequently, we've ended up with some mix of uses. But the second thing that came out of this was a series of, of, of infrastructure investments because the problem was not a shortage of land. The problem was a shortage of the ability to move increasing numbers of workers in and out of, of that wonderful compact loop that we had designed uh, in the morning and in the evening. And uh, except for the transit rays down the middle of the freeway, we hadn't been adding much uh, new capacity, as I was reminded earlier tonight. We had put in the red line. What year did, what year did we do the, the Dearborn subway? 1952, yeah, was the last significant transit capacity enhancement we had in the central area. So what we did was uh, CDOT was very much a collaborator on this study and took our workforce trip pro office projections, turned them into workforce trip projections, turned them into how many people we needed to start planning on moving in and out morning and evening. And the upshot of it was if we want to support these densities, if this is going to continue to be the job engine for the region, we needed to make some a, a whole new generation of transit investments. These are a few of them, a new West Loop Transportation Center, a new Clinton Street subway, and a series of transitways. This is the West Loop Transportation Center. We understand from interviewing Lee Bay, this is the one that, that the mayor loved the best. This was a, a final illustration. Um, but probably the breakthrough recommendation was here, uh, the, this is son of circulator, okay? we, we the, the plans that, that Brad outlined earlier all talked about a revitalized and expanded subway station. We then moved into eight years of planning for a circulator, which, which, which got dropped. This is the next iteration, which is grade-separated transitways, one under Monroe, one following the old Chicago Northwestern right away under the Merchandise Mart and out to Navy Pier, and one coming up the lakefront in the depressed railroad right away, which is... In the meantime, had MPEA has, has done the dedicated convention bus uh, facility. And this is what that would look like. It's moving, putting a transitway under an open area that does exist under Monroe, but above the subway system. In the meantime, after this plan was adopted, the downtown was on a real growth pattern. And these maps really began with that study showing where growth was going so we could start planning for growth in a more systematic way. Where is it, what sectors are growing and what's the shifting geography of that growth? So here's residential growth, which had been uh, a Lincoln Park phenomena, but very substantially moving into the South Loop, 40% of the growth for the decade in the South Loop, and pushing out Madison to United Center. And following that, convenient shopping. Everybody remember when we had the first Dominic's on Roosevelt? The second Dominic's, the second Dominic's was on division. We're all so excited. Now we have the th two generations of grocery stores since then. We have the new Mariano's. We have the Targets with grocery departments. But these are all primarily new convenience shopping centers that have come in to serve this, this growing residential population. And then because of Millennium Park, this we call this the Millennium Park uh, effect, and that is the shift of hotel development both new and renovation, back to the loop. There were no dots south of the river when, the, when this decade began. So this, this, uh, 
So through this ex uh, growth, we took us took us, only took us another five or six years then to get around to the implementation plan for a lot of reasons. But the implementation plan focused on quantifying what would these improvements cost, what how would they need to be phased. We had a series of task forces. And transportation, there's no way around it, is an expensive investment. Uh, so we came up with a total of uh, something in the neighborhood of $15 billion worth of improvements, and but logically phased. Uh, phased in terms of their economic development potentials, phased in terms of how they interrelated with each other. And this was the hope that in the first four years, we'd have put about $6 billion in place, and then decreasing. There's that big initial investment to get these big projects launched, $5 billion in the next four, $4 billion in the following. Um, to date, we've done on this chart, this is a summary map of those proposed transportation improvements with the three transit ways, the new Clinton Street subway, this West Loop Transportation Center, and so far. To date, we have done one infill station on Morgan. We're building another infill station on Cermak and 23rd. Um, I'm hoping we still get one at Division. Uh, we've done some uh, station modernization, but none of the major capital projects that I've mentioned have started. In the meantime, so in the meantime, along with this growth, you'd have to ask yourself, why? Why the lapse between the 2003 plan and the implementation plan? And once we had this implementation plan, why didn't we get going? Well, we were entering a national recession, but we had, uh, the book points out there were some other things going on. Does this, does this sketch look familiar? Does this, does this look an awful lot like the 1982 World's Fair plan by any chance? So anyway, we had the pixie dust of Millennium Park, which assured us we had been successful on all fronts. Uh, and the business community became very engaged in an aggressive and ambitious uh, Olympic bid. And within uh, two months of the 09 action plan coming out, the Olympic bid collapsed. Uh, the mayor announced he wasn't going to run for office again and we entered into a whole new phase of the recession. That's what's happened to the 09 plan. Um, so Brad's going to talk about uh, where that leaves us. Yes, I'll talk a bit about the challenges, and then John will wrap it up with uh, our agenda and, and the talking about the future. We have a lot more challenges uh, as a city, and one of them is how do we attract new populations. One of the reasons that Chicago did not uh, take word uh, spiral that Detroit, St. Louis, and Cleveland did is because we attracted a whole lot of immigrants. This chart shows the various cities. This greenish, yellowish, greenish section is the Hispanic population. Uh, and we were able to attract a lot more Hispanic immigrants as well as a, a sizable Asian immigrant population that other cities were simply not able to attract. However, the population has still declined in the last decade. Uh, and so we face the same problem that other cities face is how do you keep attracting immigrants to your city? Throughout Chicago's history, we have been reliant on new groups showing up, willing to embrace the city, willing to live here, willing to live in its housing stock. Uh, and unless we can find new populations, we're going to, to struggle. We also, uh, this, the, the, where is this population change taking place? Um, the north side, of course, has undergone a great deal of gentrification and, and seen population increase, but that's been more than offset, and this one is non-Hispanic whites. So a whole lot of non-Hispanic whites moved into the north side, but they'd left the northwest side, 
the southwest side, or and aging is also a part of this. Um, the African-American exodus from the south side and the west side has really been crushing. 180,000 African-Americans left the city in the last decade. We've got to stem that outflow of working-class, middle-class African-Americans. Um, and so these are, these are vital issues for the city uh, that planning might be able to address. The, what we're also facing is kind of a, what you might call European donut-style issues where the uh, wealth is concentrated downtown and yet we're losing income in this broad swath on the edge of the city. In the past, it had been the opposite. Downtown had been this concentration of the lower-income families, uh, lower-income in individuals, and then the suburbs were more wealthy. That's inverting. Um, we have faced two other problems. One is that we're up to our eyeballs in debt. Uh, luckily, the interest rates are low, so this financing this debt has not been uh, devastating, but we're now tapped out. Where are we going to find new sources of revenue, new sources uh, of, for borrowing? That's a big issue. Finally, uh, we've fractured the city in terms of planning into a whole variety of TIFs. We have over 150 TIFs. Uh, this map shows all the various TIF districts. That has really fractured our capital budgeting. There are now 150 pots of money around the city for uh, doing projects. We're not thinking systematically about the whole city and about um, its entire set of investments. We could talk forever about TIFs. But, uh, and, you know, individually, TIFs are strong planning tools that can do wonders. But collectively, when our entire city is now wrapped up in a whole 150 TIFs, we've lost uh, the ability to think uh, in, a, in a broad, comprehensive way about our capital budgets. Um, John's going to talk about the departmental issues and bring it home here. Uh, and there have been organizational challenges. Um, I mentioned that the action plan came out just at the point where we were, uh, the city was going to face a transition of uh, mayors. Uh, but, but this is the organizational challenge. We've had a transition in mayoral leadership. By the way, when you, when you get, the, get the book, um, and then the back, uh, there's a listing of all of the commissioners, all of the mayors, all the department names since 1957. Um, but one of the things you'll notice is that the pace of change has picked up. So that we now have had three different departmental major reorganizations and namings uh, since 2006 and four different commissioners. Uh, this, it's hard to uh, steadily plan in an environment like this. And by the way, uh, Commissioner Mooney has been publicly speaking about uh, functioning with 40% less budget than the predecessor departments. And, um, and in our minds, at least, uh, no one's works harder than the planners that are still at the city of Chicago. But there's less budget, there's fewer of them, and frankly, we don't see much sign that there's not going to be fewer of them if we give this same talk 12 months from now, maybe six months from now. So where are we with our new mayor and planning? Uh, Ted Wysocki has a wonderful quote in the book about saying, we're moving towards what could be called privatization of planning. So far, we've had very high-level reports. These are all wonderful reports in some ways. World Business Chicago, the OECD Territorial Review, um, advocating for improved labor force, uh, thinking more globally, da-da, da-da, da-da. And um, again, this is an important part of the picture because you do want the business community engaged in thinking about our economic future. I guess what we would argue, though, is that it's incomplete because 
unless these reports are connected to a robust city planning function, which does include capital funding, which does include implementing transit plans, which does include funding mechanisms, these things are disconnected and incomplete. We're also seeing a huge focus on quick recruitment hits. I'm not against recruitment. I worked on the Boeing recruitment package, as Commissioner Berg will recall. We worked on the Ford Supplier one, which you've heard about. It's wonderful, but to some extent we're moving pieces around the chessboard. We're going to run out of suburban headquarters. We can move into the city after we've pissed off all the suburbs who won't want to do any regional planning with us if we keep it up. So um, here's our agenda, which we've tried not to be prescriptive in the book. What we're saying is we want a strong planning function. We want plans to be considered in the mayoral decisions. We want them to be considered in the budget decisions. Going back to the Richard J. model, the Richard J. Department had the final say over, over capital budgets from every department. It had the final say over zoning. Um, it had the final say over what was then the Land Clearance Commission and winding those programs up. So there's something to be said for planners being at the middle of the, uh, in the middle of the action. And I would say we've, we've, to some extent, been marginalized. So we're trying not to be prescriptive. We're saying, let's restore the planning function, and let's let a good planning function decide what we need next. Having said that, we think we have to increase transit capacity. We just can't back away from that. And by the way, 80% of increasing capacity relates to investing in an existing system. This isn't pie in the sky. We're not talking about monorails. We're talking about bringing a system up to speed literally up to speed with signals and track and cars and, and buses and so on. We need to adapt our industrial policy to today's world. All the employment gains, uh, Tarn helped us with the first round of employment numbers, but the employment gains are in categories that could be called compatible with manufacturing, uh, but a lot of the employment gains are in business services. We want those jobs. The city needs those jobs, and we're going to have to get, we're gonna have to get creative and we've looked at a lot of other cities now who are now moving to employment densities as criteria instead of strictly defining by type of job. And I'm, ho I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to take uh, this wonderful PMD thing, which did serve some very important purposes, and be able to adapt, adapt it to a, a very rapidly changing employment base. We need to implement the central area plans. Are they perfect? No. But they've got a lot of good stuff in them. We haven't even begun to implement the 2003 plan, which we waited, as you recall, 20 years to get. Then we took another six years to do an implementation plan. We haven't even touched the surface of what was going to be the phase one. As, as Brad has laid out, we need robust neighborhood planning, depopulation. I don't think the full impact of the foreclosure uh, crisis has really penetrated the way we think about city programs. And last but not least, assert planning as a priority. Our contention is we need three pillars to succeed, and we would say that if you look back over the last 60 years of planning, as we've tried to do in this book, when we've been able to move the needle forward, we've had a city hall that has had a strong commitment to plans and uses planning in its decision-making. We've had an engaged business community, and when we've been able to carry things out, they've been generous in their support, and we've had communities that have been able to share in a vision. And I would leave you with this thought, that if planning doesn't do anything else for us, and I think it does many things, 
It helps us create a shared vision that we can all get behind. Unless we get the public thinking about that the better, that tomorrow can be better, uh, and they are not going to be willing to dig into their pockets and pay more tax dollars to support uh, all of these, all the plans that we come up with. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks, guys. And as a reminder, as we open this up to a Q&A, just put your hand up, and I'll come around with this microphone so that we can record your question for our podcast. Thank you, guys. Great presentation. Thank um, you. My question has two parts. Yeah. How much did the commitment to high transit service levels through Metra and CTA when everybody else was disinvesting in their rail systems and the parking policy, you know, relatively high parking costs in the loop, contribute to the success from the 50s up through today. And second part is, how much might the Midwest Regional Rail Initiative and improved service to surrounding cities might contribute to our success in being able to implement this plan and, and see a lot of this going forward? One, one, of, the, one, of, the, um, one of the great graphics in the 2003 plan was where we looked at the percentage of, of uh, workers in the central area in American cities using transit. And uh, there were only two cities in 2003 where the majority of workers were using transit, New York City and Chicago. Um, and I think um, in both cases, uh, transit was absolutely critical to that robust office growth. Um, in fact, through that time frame, we were still capturing 60% of the regional office growth, uh, white, both white collar and, and really pink collar, even health medical office growth, that had started to slip. That had slipped to the low 50s and was on a downward trend um, when we did the 03 plan. Um, we were able to see it inch up a little bit in this last decade, but the goals of the 09 implementation plan are all tied to the, pros the, propos the proposition that if you provide efficient workday transit, that's a number that could get pushed back to 60%. Incrementally, how much more could the inner city connections add? I don't know, but uh, I think you probably saw the recent Urbano file article on Milwaukee uh, merging with us as a business entity. There's certainly other, other possibilities. I'm very hopeful, although the St. Louis line's gotten a lot of publicity, I'm very hopeful that our connection to Michigan is going to turn into something very positive for us as well. So we're very tied, we're still, still are very tied to that auto sector and, and, and that, that sector is getting back on its feet. Thank you. I've been meaning to ask you to, have you had any success in getting your presentation in front of our current mayor? Well, we've, we've, well, I think what we've done, we've, we're, we're, um, we're on the APA marketing circuit here at this moment, but um, but I think incrementally we'd like to see the conversation raised. Um, so far, we have talked to the Chicago Architectural Foundation. Brad, you're going to have to cue me in here. Uh, the Realty Club of Chicago. We're speaking to the Women's Athletic Arch uh, we, uh, Association tomorrow night. Uh, we spoke to the Chicago Area Policy Group. Uh, Thursday, uh, which was a combined presentation with the Civic Federation. Um, I think we're coming up, we're doing the Newberry, we're doing the Chicago Public Library. If you've got other venues you think we should, uh, we should get uh, to. 
Yeah, we missed the main Lambda Alpha meeting, but I'm thinking there's enough interest, I think, in the book. We may want to do a series of discussion groups even over the summer. Um, and um, we did. We are broaching the subject uh, with MPC about uh, they, sh they should get involved in this dialogue as well. Um, the Central Area Committee has not really been functioning. Uh, don't know if that's going to continue to be a model. But uh, no, we would love to have the, uh, the, the City Hall paying attention to this. Uh, that would be the ultimate good result. Thank you. Thanks, and um, thank you for your presentation. I have your book, which I've started reading. is very good. One of the sentences right at the beginning, which says, planning in Chicago has rarely been executed by professionals applying best practices to enhance the public good. And so when doing history, you never have a counterfactual. We have to sort of look back and look forward at where we are. And I, I asked the question, how do we make the call to planning that you have tractable? Because you know, many could say, well, we've muddled through for the many past decades with this hodgepodge of planning and not planning and aldermanic interest and mayoral power. And, you know, some of the things are very sobering, which you show, some of those numbers, some of the things compared to other cities look pretty all right. So, you know, the people benefiting from the way things are now clearly think things are fine. Those who could do better aren't sort of, the people, the constituency with the voice. So, you know, as planners, as professionals, as, as people interested in, in doing this, how do we really frame that message in terms of, of benefits or, or, you know, making it tractable? Because it's very easy, I think, to be a contrarian and say we don't need any of this. We've been fine the way we are. That's a great question, and it gets to the heart of uh, the, the question about reasserting planning as a as a vital function in a city. And planning underwent this crisis of confidence in the, in the last few decades. Like, well, you know, we, Jane Jacobs and this told us that we, we were plowing these neighborhoods down and therefore, and the only legitimate planning is bottom up. Uh, and so we're reluctant to assert ourselves that, look, we have this important element to say and we have an important message in these conversations about the future of the city. When people look around and say, well, what do you need planning for? We're, we're, you know, the, the business community will take care of, you know, developer, it's like development is planning and projects are planning. And what we're trying to say is that planning, it has to be broader. It has to get beyond this next piece of land and think systematically and comprehensively. It has to uh, think about the needs of all the citizens in a broader way. We did that in the 1909 era with a very splashy plan with had a lot of, it was a pretty much a, a corporate centered plan. Um, but if we had a, a planning department that could could assert a, a a new comprehensive plan, perhaps for the city, and make the case that we have learned a lot in the last forty years, we've got a good idea of what we want to do and what we need to do, and this is our shared civic vision, then I think then planning that way planning. Now you're, you you've got a good point. Now how do what's the strategy for tomorrow morning? I don't know. Um, I'm not a great tactician in terms of what the next thing to get the neighborhoods on board. But we've got all these great ideas, um, I think, and that, that could come together in a kind of comprehensive way that could be sold as the future of the next 30 years. We don't ha nobody's talking about the next 30 years. We're worried about paying off this, you know, the debt we've run up and things like that. Nobody, we're not thinking where are we going to be in 2050 uh, as a city. Now, there's a regional, the CMAP's doing some great stuff, but... We've got to think about that as a city ourselves.
I thought I was going to be able to stay quiet, but I couldn't. <laughs> um, I wanted to follow up on this gentleman's um, comment um, and follow up on something that you said, Brad, when you talked about population. I mean, one thing that begs the question about the need for planning versus what's going on right now is CMAP is projecting 2.4 million new people in the region. Where are they going to go? Where are they going to live? And um, you talked about the need to plan for population growth, that we're, you know, we need to keep getting those new people here. So I just want, I started your book. Um, I just get so excited when I read it. I just, <laughs> I just keep going back and forth. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish it tonight. But um, how do you propose that we look at this um, issue of population growth? What do we capture here in Chicago? And uh, looking around, we've still got lots and lots of vacant land that we haven't filled up from all those old plants. Yeah, that's a great question. CMAS projecting 2.4 million new people, yet we lost, um, uh, you know, the, we lost 180,000, 200,000 in Chicago. So does that mean everybody's going to, most of that growth is going to occur in the suburbs? If so, that's a whole new set of problems, plans. We really need to capture that growth downtown in these neighborhoods that are aging and or depopulating, particularly um, uh, in attracting in the neighborhoods that, like in the south side and the west side, how are we going to attract African Americans back to the city? How are we going to attract new populations to develop racially integrated communities that are going to be viable and vital um, to the city? Um, uh, yeah, do I have a great answer for that? No, I don't. Uh, this is the problem. Somebody's got to figure it out. Uh, how do you attract? You can do lots of good, solid community planning to try to retain and grow populations. It's not easy. Um, it takes a whole lot of comprehensive planning to make these neighborhoods vital. Um, that's the easy answer. Uh, my question is, any of our peer cities doing better a better job at planning that you know of? Well, yeah, there's, yeah, our predecessor volume, we were kind of surprised. Uh, the predecessor volume in this series um, still for sale by the American Planning Association, is planning Los Angeles. And uh, talk about a city that we thought was kind of the opposite of, of good planning. So uh, so pick up the planning uh, Los Angeles book. He's running out to get it now. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think in the Midwest, Minneapolis-St. Paul is doing a pretty good job. They always have historically with the benefit of, of uh, regional government that actually has some power. Um I don't know. I don't know of any others off right in. Yeah. One of the things cities like Los Angeles and Denver have done is they've spent the last 15, 20 years planning for uh, transit investment. So they're digging subways. We think these things are impossibly expensive. They're getting it done. Uh, they went and got the federal New Start money. They've expanded their, they've really heavily gone after transit in a way that we've kind of been patching our system together as best as possible, but have not been as innovative with uh, Los Angeles has reinvigorated its downtown in a way. It's starting to really think about that systematically, uh, connecting with high-speed rail. Uh, now that, that's who knows. But, you know, these are much more aggressive planning for the next 50 years. We're resting on laurels is my concern. Yeah, we'll take one more question here. It is such a readable book oh, that you. I think you should propose it for one book, one Chicago. Oh, the readership series. Thank you for the nice, wonderful suggestion. If you can, uh, well, that's that's a fa that's a fabulous suggestion. I did want to give 
credit uh, Jen McNeil is in the audience tonight. Jen worked on our 09 plan and a lot of the stuff leading up to it. So thanks for coming tonight. And any other technical questions you have about that plan called Ask Jen. Maybe maybe we should get to ask a question. We have Commissioner Berg here presided over the 03 plan and Patty, you guys, uh, have we basically, uh, do you think we've, you think we've uh, described it right or correctly? Have we missed anything big in the 03 or the 09 rendition? I'm, it's probably an unfair question if you haven't read it yet, but uh, <laughs> but in terms of what we've said, uh, even. Um, well, no, I don't think that you missed anything big <laughs> there. I mean, I think there were other plans that actually you didn't highlight today. Actually, yes. I think one of the better plans that was done, Patty worked on, which the plan for River North, I think was a great plan. That was yeah, River North was good. I think some of the stuff he, <laughs> some of the stuff he did on State Street was good. I think mean, we just yeah. yeah. I think we did a lot of corridor planning that you didn't yes. really get into. That was sort right. of more what was the neighborhoods. I think that's of, that's right. And and um, we're, we're the whole effort of you know zoning reform was sort of a planning effort. Yeah, and we kind of ceded down. that territory to Joe Schwederman in his oh. zoning book, but oh, okay. uh, yeah. <laughs> we can we can blame Joe for But it is part on. of it, it is part of the you know the picture. Yeah, thank you very much. One of the one of the ideas that's shaping up in our mind and we haven't mentioned this to APA yet is that we're hearing now of, of plans we missed or themes that should have been expanded and there are still there are generations of people in the city that if we don't capture some of that story. We did we tried to capture a lot of it here. We that, early, that earliest picture that Brad showed of the planning department, I don't know if you noticed the two people sitting at the end of the table, but that was Norm and Betty Elkin sitting at the end of the table. Um, it wasn't Betty Elkin then, but it was Norm and to-be Betty Elkin sitting at the end of that table. So we've tried to, through the interviews, get a lot of people on record, people have ransacked their file cabinets. There is a list in the back, as I mentioned, of all the plans we were able to track down and I already heard there's a 68 traffic plan that Patty showed me that we missed. But we're keeping track of those, and if we keep selling, sell out this initial 2,000, we can expand that list. But at least we got a list to work from now. And uh, well, there was a lot of, that's another purpose of the book was to say, let's document uh, this, this half century of, of what we've done. And before a lot of these plans disappear, before this, and before the generation that worked on these plans is not with us to to tell us what happened. And to and, thank yeah. the planners yeah. Yeah. who've worked on. I mean, there are a lot of people in the room who who've worked really hard on plans that we need to, uh, you know, boost re reinvigorate planning to support their work. Um, and that was a major purpose of the book too, to say, we're there's lots of people really trying hard, but they lack the bigger public support. And hopefully we can generate that through starting this conversation. I should mention one other thing. We've talked an awful lot about planning department, planning department. One of the things that was great about the 03 and the 09 plan was they were really shared between the Department of Planning, CDOT, and what was then the Department of the Environment. They were truly taking, I would say, best practices and serious planning direction from all three of those. And so don't don't misinterpret us to think there's one department or one viewpoint can do this. We're trying to be inclusive in our definition. And certainly transportation planning has all has all the money. So we got we got to include those guys, you know. So anyway, thanks very much. I think for the sake of time, let that be the final word. Let's have one more round of applause for our speakers. On behalf of the American Planning Association, I want to thank Brad Hunt and John DeVries for a thought-provoking and informative program on Planning Chicago.
Thanks also to the many APA staff members who help make this program possible every month. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. I'm David Morley.